Oh, hey, now this is your only podcast, right? Technically, yeah. <laughs> For the time being. I think we are moving up. <laughs> I am a winner, got a hot hand. This is episode 198 of Insert Credit, a relentlessly on-topic program where a panel of video game authority figures just have to deal with whatever they're presented with by me. Uh, those experts have six minutes to address each topic, with any time overage rebuked by the sound of a horrible buzzer. I'm Alex Jaffe, and the longest that I've gone playing a single video game without breaking for more than an hour was one time in summer camp when a counselor bet that I couldn't spend the entire day playing Mega Man Battle Network 2 after I had already stayed up all night the previous night playing Meta Mega Man Battle Network 2. That was the hill you chose to die on? Yeah. That's weird. Um, I'm Brandon Sheffield. The longest I've played a game without stopping for more than an hour. It's weird, but it's. Pr I've told this story before, but it's probably that, that one time that I was extremely sick with the flu and played Dragon Age straight through. I mean, I did go to sleep, but the rest of what I did during the day was play Dragon Age, so I probably played it for like eight, ten hours. The first thing? I believe it was the first one. Yeah, yeah. for sure it was the first one. Um, but it wasn't because I was enraptured with Dragon Age particularly. It was more because Aww. I had the flu. I mean, I liked it, but it, it wasn't like, this is the game that I'm going to go all the way, you know? I think perhaps consciously, it, it's it's got to be one of those Yakuza's. Mm. Probably played some, some of those for three, four hours at a time. But I, I, I'm not very good at marathoning these things. I get I get fatigued. Well, we've got a couple other uh, people on the show this week to uh, lend their own perspective on this hot topic. First up, uh, we've got a recent Kotaku escapee and new writer for The Verge, <laughs> Ash Parrish is on the show. Hi. Um, trying to think of the longest time I've played a video game without stopping. Was it also Dragon Age? No, it wasn't Dragon Age. Uh, might be. Like, <laughs> so the without stopping is where things get a little complicated, but I remember once that I was, um, do you remember the Sorceress Adele fight in Final Fantasy VIII? Sure. I was getting my ass kicked by that fight, and I, like, I was going through the Lunatic Pandora, and I didn't have a save card or whatever, and I was at that fight, and this was, like, the third time that I was attempting this fight. Because oh, no. whatever. Yeah, I know. So I had to stop for dinner, and I had been playing this for hours and hours and hours, much to the chagrin of my mother, oh, and I had to oh, stop no. for dinner. And I had oh, no. to, so I, and, you know, black parents, when you were, like, come to dinner, you have to, like, turn it off. No, 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 so, no, no, no. I, I know. I turned the TV off so she wouldn't see that the TV was on. So she would think I turned off the game, but I left the console running. And okay. I think my little sister turned off the console. No! Oh, no! <laughs> I, I was going to say that was a very smart move. Yeah. We just heard another voice. Uh, that's another veteran of the show who we've uh, invited to fill in for Frank this week. Hi. Composer, developer, and video game podcaster, uh, Liz Lids Ryerson. Oh my god, is that an actual nickname now? It's it stuck, I'm afraid. Oh my god. Is it because of your collection of hats? It's because of the hats, <laughs> yes. I, I own zero hats, I just want to say that for the record, so this is slander. But <laughs> Are you anti-hat? I would say as someone who makes games, who makes music, and who writes about games and broadcasts about, that you are someone who wears many hats. Oh, I was going to say, I, 
Maybe I'm like a boiling pot and I just have to keep the lid on so I don't explode. That really might be the lid in question, yes. Marathon game. I do not. I'm not the type of person who plays a game a really long time. I just don't have the attention span for it. I recall playing a lot of Worms Armageddon, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, playing it for a very long period of time to the point where I remembered and being like, gee, this is a really long period of time. But um, whenever I play a console, like, uh, I think I mentioned this story before, but like my dad didn't understand the difference between PCs and consoles because, you know, he never act- interacted with consoles. So he was always like, you know, when we had to go to dinner or something, he was always like, sign off. And I was like, what? You can't sign off. You have to like find a save point. He's like, sign off. <laughs> I was, I, he didn't understand the concept of save points in a game or the fact that you can't just turn it off at any point. But yep. Worms Armageddon. Hard to bridge that divide. Uh, anyway, we have a lot of important things to talk about this episode. Uh, first and foremost, I know we're dying to get it off our chests here. This week, we learned that Idris Elba is Knuckles the Echidna. We got to talk about it. First. That's why yeah. I'll call me. Okay. Yeah. Now you know. In 2020, in our end of the year episode, we declared that the Sonic the Hedgehog movie was one of the best video games of the year. This is just, I guess, making a good thing better. I mean, of course. He's. Uh, we've we've seen that he turned down Bond to become Knuckles, and sure. everybody's pretty much on board with that. What, what's to dislike? <laughs> I mean, I, I can only imagine him just being like in his role in Cats or something like that. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know how this works. I haven't That's seen the Sonic the Hedgehog Cats. movie, though. Has he played a lot of Sonic? Did he play uh, Sonic 3 and Knuckles when it came out? Do you think so? I'm going to say yes. He's of the age. He is of the age. Um, I have been desperately trying to find uh, an email for his uh, publicist or someone I can, you know, get in touch with him to ask him these questions because the black community has like completely seized upon this news. And like, this is holy hallelujah, you know, because for some reason we have this affinity with Sonic characters, specifically Knuckles, because he's black coded. So like, this is like, oh my God, manna from heaven. So we're really excited about it. As we've discussed on this very show before, internal uh, Sega lore is that Knuckles is based on Michael Jackson. Have we had that discussion before? I don't think we... Didn't we on this show? I don't think so. Not with me. I'm pretty sure Frank told this story. Uh, How is is he based on Michael Jackson? He likes to like punch things. You know how things change in development, but the (laughs) original sketch was we got to get Michael Jackson in this game as a character. Michael Jackson is kicks, not punch. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they couldn't make it work. He could glide, Michael Jackson. He could glide. So that's that was Knuckles' original concept, knees? Must have been. <laughs> yeah, it was probably knees. It was the uh, tippy toes. Right. So was this this was around the time of Sonic 3, right? Because he was mm-hmm. involved with the with the music with the soundtrack. Is that correct? That's pretty much undeniable at this point. Yeah. So so I imagine that they were developing the character at the same time. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay, we'll just go with that since we since we don't have Frank here to clarify. Mm-hmm. Is there black coding in Knuckles that has translated, considering how much has changed from that alleged original pitch? I personally have never saw any blackness coded into Knuckles, but I was talking to a bunch of black people that are in video games, and they have shown, like, they've completely opened my eyes to the idea, specifically Black West African. So you think of Knuckles' spikes as spikes, but... Other people have read them as dreadlocks. Mm -hmm. And then you think of like, he's got these colorful shoes that kind of look like sneakers. And you think about black kids and sneaker culture. That's the other thing. And then um, Sonic Adventure 2, where you get all of his gear and he looks like this blinged out dude with like 
goggles and like the little things on his wrists. And I think he's got a chain that he wears or something like that. I have to look up the picture. But yeah, and and then there's the the song in Pumpkin Hill. Have you heard, you know that song? Right? I, I love that song. That song is unlike awesome. you, I don't chuckle. <laughs> that is a great uh, piece of video game music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like it's all been there this entire time, and I just haven't like put it all together until other people put it together when this news dropped. So it, it, it's quite a bit. And then the whole like black people in Sonic in general. Well, the guy was voiced by Jaleel White for like a while. So That's like true. Steve Urkel. So like it's there. Like there's been some kind of I don't know tenuous connection that's always just like existed in a way that it hadn't for like other games. Like, you don't see the same thing with Mario. You see it only for Sonic. And maybe that was had something to do with the way that the Sega Genesis was priced and its access because we didn't have a Nintendo in my house or I didn't have a Nintendo in my house or a Genesis. It was my cousin's. I wonder if it was had something to do with access to the consoles and to the games where Sonic being more accessible, the way that he was marketed was a little bit more like night because this was the 90s, right? So it was like yeah. instead of like the bubblegummy way that Mario was like, you know, family friendly, it was like this edgier thing that. I don't know. It's like a Sprite commercial. It kind of just like it gets the culture, as it were. I always thought uh, Sonic just in general as a series was specifically. I mean, this is something I intuited, but maybe didn't. I don't know if it was necessarily conscious, but it was like specifically more directed to black audiences than, you know, previous games as an intentional thing, because, you know, that is the kind of the era when hip hop culture is starting to become mainstream. Right. And yeah. yeah, I would guess that it was, you know, since it was developed in Japan and all, I wouldn't imagine them literally trying to court black folks with knuckles directly. But the idea of leaning into hip hop culture as something right, that was that just was cool in America. In yeah, general. that was the predominant American medium at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it might have been not accidental, but like a byproduct of it. I, I definitely do have in my mind, like all my black friends had a Genesis and many, many of my, you know, n- newer black friends from the last 10 years will tell me the same that it's like, oh, yeah, the, the Genesis is what you had. And I, I would love to investigate that more someday. You brought up a good point with Cats, I think. This isn't really a step down for Idris Elba. He's been in this space before. So I guess... Uh, I, I don't know what there what there is more to say about it. But... Yeah, there's nothing more to say about this. Like, are we going to get Sonic Boom Knuckles? Or are we going to get, grr, edgy Sonic 3 Knuckles? Like, which I think we're going to get Sonic 3 Knuckles. Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, let's talk about video game collections. Uh, not the people who are uh, trying to get rich off of uh, buying up every copy of a game, like we've discussed on a previous episode, but like the cool ones. What are the good video game collections that you're aware of? We're talking about Miss Linda. Focusing on specific consoles or specific types of games? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. For instance, uh, I have a friend, Mark, who has made it his life's mission to uh, collect every officially licensed collection of video game sheet music that's ever been published. I think he's missing six at this point, and uh, it's some cool stuff. He goes to Japanese bookstores. He's got these uh, online searches saved, and uh, I just really love seeing a niche video game collection. Okay, yeah, I could see that. I don't know. Do do any of you have have specific answers while I think of something? Well, I mean, this is is obviously in reference to Linda Guillory. Yeah, I was gonna wait for you guys to to come up with your your collections before I, no, I, I guess this first. was question She's for cool. me. 
Um, so for those of you who don't know, Linda Guillory is a black woman who was recently inducted to the Guinness Book of World Records for amassing the most like handheld video games ever. Hmm. I don't know ex- the exact wording of like what the Guinness World Record is, but do you remember those like old Tiger Electronic video games that had like Oh yeah. Yeah, for, like like the LED whatever. screens. Yeah, mm-hmm. LED video games. That's what she collects. And because she played those games when she was young, and I did a couple pieces uh on her for Kotaku. Uh one when she got inducted to the Hall of Fame and the other one was a follow-up just like asking her about her life. And she's like a really fascinating woman. Like she her father was like the town handyman and she would help her father and that's how she learned to like tinker with electronics and she was paid with like she could keep whatever magnets that she found and stuff like that and i just she was just so fascinating and like one of the first video games she had was like this tabletop led version of like pac-man and she always had a strong affinity for games like that and also traditional video games Uh, this wasn't in the piece but her sister is the one who's like the quote-unquote real gamer and she's the Hmm. one who does the collections like of all like the consoles and all the video games and all that stuff big zelda fam This, this is like a big zelda family and so like her mission was to just she she got grown and got grown folk money and then uh, decided I'm just going to go back and find and buy all the games from my youth. And so she she works for Texas Instruments as an engineer. So she would go to Japan often on business trips and then she would block time out for her trips to like, you know, walk up and down Shibuya, go into electronic shops, buying up whatever they could find. Like um, because her and her sister were Zelda fans, like there's like within this collection, she has a she's got this like goal to buy anything that ever had the Zelda branding. Ooh. And one of the pictures was like her Zelda shrine. And it was a beautiful, um, beautiful picture. And like right in the middle is a big vinyl record for Minish Cap. And I was so excited because Minish Cap is like my favorite non-Breath of the Wild Zelda. I never see any Minish Cap merch. Yeah. (laughs) So I was excited about that, but I just, I I love her collection. It's beautiful. It's well kept. The thing about that is um, it's all playable. So it's not something that she like keeps under glass and doesn't let people touch or whatever. Mm -hmm. She lets people play it. Like she was talking to me about how the Guinness World Record volunteers were over at her house, like counting all her stuff. And like how she would take stuff out and he's like, yeah, but the volunteers who were like kids and whatever, just like, yeah, play whatever you want. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is I want to be her when I grow up. <laughs> Wonderful woman. If you get the opportunity to go read the pieces on Kotaku, they're great. I, I had the most fun writing. Them. Yeah. Did she have like her sister come over and, and play the game since her sister seems to be the one who is the, the, ga- the gamer? The way that she says it to me is that she goes over her house if she wants to play like a, a oh, traditional video game. And then I the see. sister comes over her house when they want to play like Pac-Man, an LED Pac-Man or whatever. That's funny to me because like my brother got really into collecting like Nintendo games, just like NES games when he was like a little older than me as a teen. And he never played any of the games and I was the one who played the ball. But yeah, I, I don't really have an interest in collecting, but he was much more the collector. So that's kind of made me think of that the thing with linda guillory is that i was really impressed with the there there's this video of her showing her her collection and she's got all these lcd games and she will just rattle off like the scoring system or the way that it works like she she considers herself not the gamer but she's like you know taking the that whatever touchdown game where it's it's literally just dots, and I could never even figure out what was going on in it when I, I got yeah. their store myself. Figured it out. Like, mm-hmm. This is how you do this, and this is what, and you know, if I if I go that way and then come back again, it, she's got some sort of mind map 
for how all of these games play and she can just take them right out and show you what is unique or different about them like this one is her standards for what a gamer is or is not must be extremely high yeah (laughs) yeah there's so many handhelds. I mean, those Tiger Electronics things got around so many places when I was a Those kid. are her least favorite, too. They she didn't like good. the Tiger Electronics specifically. I think she was a little too old by the time they came out, because that was, like, prolific in the 90s. And yeah. she said to me, um, like, they were always cheaply made. They broke easy. Yeah, yeah. They, they sure did. Oh, we can all I, I attest did to not that. like those. Yeah, I did not like those at all. I haven't seen anybody with this collection, but it occurs to me that it would be really uh, interesting and amusing to me if somebody has a like a big collection of Kusoge, just like shitty game collection. Oh, there's definitely those people out there. Yeah, who are just focused on that. That would be interesting to me. Wait, is Kusoge... Japanese for shitty game. Yes. Okay. All right. There's kind of like a subculture around some of those games. I think big examples are like uh, Death Crimson for the Saturn. I know is one that comes up a lot. Does it's coming up recently? The composer is releasing an accordion album pretty nice with some original um, Death Crimson branded noodles as well. Noodles. Oh. Ash, just so you know, the 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 gay is is short for gamu. Yeah, I figured. Okay. I have a little bit um, of knowledge. I took Japanese in college like every weeb. Yes. Sure. <laughs> as, as we all must. I don't know exactly who this person is, but I know that somebody out there, there, there are a lot of super plays of arcade games that were released on VHS primarily and to some extent DVD. And I know that somebody out there is collecting those and I applaud them. Someone's got to I've got a couple. Uh, speaking of music, imagine that we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic that's not really going anywhere because the world is a toxic cesspit. And the next big music festival takes place entirely in the video game Fortnite. Who do we book for it? And what are their acts like? Not the baby. Not the baby. No, the baby is not invited. He's disqualified himself. Yeah, he's out. Okay. Who do well, we, we can't say like Travis Scott or somebody because that's already happened. This is this is almost it's too plausible a scenario. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, I think um, uh, Alexandra, one of my editors at Kotaku, was telling me about a VR thing that they did that was exactly that. It was like a VR music fest. Yeah. Uh, like DJs would like set up, and you could like walk around with your VR headset and like sample music as they went. It's, I mean, even for big things like Fortnite, there are a little smaller bespoke things that are going on with this too, as this pandemic like continues on without end. Yeah, I mean, they had a real big concert in there and it, and I watched footage of it and it was pretty impressive because people were like building things up to the sky to try to hang out with the giant performer that they could barely see. But then like the bass dropped, everyone got shot up into the sky and then they were suddenly at face level with uh with the person who i don't remember who it was ariana grande no it was a dude maybe it was who you just said travis scott yeah travis scott yeah well he 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 already did a Fortnite thing there was also that dj marshmallow oh yeah he did that one too i think is only liked by kids under the age of 12 but the Fortnite audience yeah basically so i mean i know who i personally put like if i had my own personal choice not reflecting of what other people would want you know i'd put like bjork in there or <laughs> burial performance yeah. no this is what i want to get into what would bjork's Fortnite concert be like Bjorknight. i don't know it'd be interesting I w- i'd want to see death grips in Fortnite. i think that would for be sure amazing <laughs> uh, i was going the other way and i was going to be like if i have infinite money and i'm running Fortnite, and i want people to go there i'm going to spend money on Lil Nas X 
Oh, he would be perfect. He would be yeah. so perfect for it. Yeah. Would... I mean, that's almost plausible. That could happen. Yeah, it probably should happen. You know, and then you could, you know, slide down Satan's poles and stuff. And uh... Oh, that would be amazing. I am sure this conversation has been had. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm... there there is going to be another Fortnite concert thing, probably, or something very much mm-hmm. like it. I just don't see a world where it's like, okay, we're going to try to introduce these kids to some new music or something. It, it doesn't really feel like the vehicle for it because we're not trying to make money or make any sense here we're just doing our insert credit thing yeah but i want i want the people in there to to really get hype and have a good time so i i feel like that's sweet of you someone like michael jackson yeah why not bring him back from the from the old hologram michael jackson yeah like you could do that yeah we have the (laughs) recordings you could put him right next to hologram tupac Michael Jackson and Freddie Mercury. If they really did that, I would I would download Fortnite for that. Mm. Yeah. Which is kind of gross because I hate the idea of resurrecting artists from the dead to keep reusing them from their music anyway. Like that's that's something that's skeezy to me, like what they're doing with the Whitney Houston hologram and all that shit. Like I don't want to do that. Uh... But I would also I could also see it being a thing. And if it was yeah. someone like I missed out, like I I'm familiar with Michael Jackson's music. My ancestral home is like around the corner from his home in Gary, Indiana. Oh. Uh, just had to drop that in there. Um, but I was a little too young to like see him in concert or whatever. I saw his sister. But I would love to have the opportunity to experience a Michael Jackson concert because everything that I've seen about it, it's like these are, you know, these experiences. And I think the digital space, like what Fortnite creates, could kind of recreate that energy. And I would be down to experience something like that. Freddie Mercury too. I would also in the in the realm of like huge pop stars in in the vein of Freddie Mer- Mercury, the bigger the better. So I mean, it's not the right age range, but I would certainly be compelled to see like a Beyonce, uh, oh yeah, Fortnite concert just because it's like a big presence, you know. Yeah, you don't get bigger than Beyonce. I'm a big uh, Janet Jackson fan. It would be really cool to do something that you can really only do in the medium, and so. Uh, well, I mean, I guess you could do this otherwise with CG, but you have Janet Jackson, real life Janet Jackson, performing her hits through various albums and her avatar changes to like the thing she was wearing in the music video for Control or whatever uh, as it goes along. And 100%. And... That would be a beautiful thing. I would or do that. What about like late 90s, early 2000s hip hop ticket where the entire uh, game takes place? in that uh cheese grater that all the music videos take place <laughs> okay that would be that would be pretty cool yeah i i i approve of that yeah it'd be pretty good uh but yeah you mentioned freddie mercury fortnite is a battle royale game uh that's the plot of highlander just uh, oh, right. it, it's waiting to happen just marry the two the queen did the soundtrack maybe it'll be a a better interpretation of queen than the freaking movie that <laughs> it could be that I, I have only recently seen the Highlander movie, thanks to my partner. And that soundtrack is a damn sight better than it has any reason to be for that movie. It goes so hard. I remember being seriously impressed. Like, damn, y'all wasted Queen on this? <laughs> it had no reason to go that hard, but it was Queen. They committed. Anyway, while we're still in the music space, I have to a- ask you, are video games part of Vaporwave? Oh, God. Vaporwave <laughs> are part of video games. It's the other way hmm. around. Yeah. Explain. I mean, if you look at, I was just talking about this the other day, like Vaporwave album that's pretty famous called uh, I'll Try Living Like This by Death's Dynamic Shroud. Check it out, by the way. Heavily samples Sonic R 
Um, and I was hell yeah. You. Oh yeah. <laughs> like the the last track is slowed down version of living in the city, and they just repeat the line "Living in the city, you know you have to survive." And it like, well, I actually bought that album on vinyl, uh, and like I I actually felt very emotional. <laughs> listening to that because it's just like yeah that is what living in the city yeah (laughs) you you do know you have to survive have to keep the dream alive no one's gonna do it for you but um no i mean like video games are are an inherent component of like so many genres not just vaporwave you know quote unquote hyper pop which may or may not be a real thing anymore you know hip-hop tons of hip-hop beats are like you know inspired by final fantasy soundtracks and you know all that so i think it's it's more it's more the latter that like uh video games have sort of become a part of other culture just by virtue of being so big and crucial to people's childhoods and all that i feel like it's kind of cyclical though as well because the vaporwave music that has come out that is influenced by video games has then influenced people that younger people that hadn't played like games from the 90s or PC games with, you know, that particular kind of shiny pre-rendered CG that they had. And it gets them back interested in that stuff. And I've now seen a lot of games that are made with the quote vaporwave aesthetic made by younger people who weren't around during that. They weren't even alive during that time. Is vaporwave just bespoke chiptune? Um, I mean, they're connected. Not really. I, I think they're they're connected in a in an abstract sort of way. I think of it as the abstracted Windows ninety five startup noise. Okay, it's closer to like the uh, the chopped and screwed subgenre of things that were or mashups as well. Yeah, Vaporwave is like smeary late eighties VHS CG pre renders with uh you know neon purple colors and this kind of like. 80s synth kind of music happening that's like the the cliche image of vaporwave that a lot of stuff there's a lot of speeding up and slowing down of existing sampled music and uh so it also has ties to kind of the cassette recording culture where people would physically mess with their cassettes as they were recording handmade sailor moon amvs on crt yes yeah Mm. it's just just kind of the internet digital underground kind of vague aesthetic that absorbs into a lot of things these days but there are a lot of vaporwave albums that sell on cassette too that like focus on you know like net labels and all that kind of stuff i remember seeing this game for a festival i judged called broken reality that was like very explicitly vaporwave aesthetic inspired to the point where like you know it was at this festival and i described it to the people who made it as like a vaporwave game and they kind of rolled their eyes and they're like yeah that's not really the intention but it kind of got marketed that way but anyway I think there are certainly plenty of games that are vaporwave inspired and that aesthetic is making its way into games. But I think it comes from just cultural ephemera Mm. and games are obviously a heavy part of that. Plus games are game music is a lot easier to sample and get away with than you know, other things. That's if I had to come up with a vaporwave that is a game or a game that is inspired by vaporwave, Umurangi Generation. Mm -hmm. It is. It has that like vibe yeah it definitely like has just that radio polygons and then the music yeah like- yeah there's there's definitely a connection there definitely yeah there's a lot of them out there these days and it's weird because i i did think that vaporwave was gonna kind of be a flash in the pan sort of thing but it seems to be sticking around which is interesting very much unlike the name which it suggests well, it's like a lot of the other things is morphed into a bunch of different kinds of things. And there are probably plenty of people who say that it died, you know, years ago. But, of course. you know, 
but people are still doing it. I one of my recommendations, uh, like two three weeks ago, was a vaporwave artist who, rather than '90s American soul music or '80s '90s, uses '80s uh, Mexican ballads mm. and like synth forward tracks and stuff, and it rules. So. Yeah, it's it's still happening. There's still room for more to be done, I think. Yeah. Uh, we got one more music question. This one comes from The Dirt Bag. Every week, I take one question from the patrons who subscribe to us for just $3 a month at patreon.com slash insert credit, where you can get the opportunity sub- to submit your own questions, access to our regular episodes one day early. How many how many days early was that? One day early? Uh-huh. One day early. One day? One day early. Uno dia. And uh, even access to monthly bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Uh, this is a two-part question from Sleepy Nice, uh, who first says, have Brandon list five metal subgenres? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, uh, Black Thrash. Um, I'm trying to think of good ones that I actually like. Doom, Sludge, uh, Second Wave Black Metal. I guess I like Second Wave most, maybe Third Wave. And uh, grindcore. I could keep okay, that's five. naming more though. I mean, five is not a big challenge. It it would have been better if it were like name my five favorites, which I didn't do. These are the five we're stuck with. The second part is what five video games best represent the specific characteristics of each of these subgenres. Okay. I'm going to paste them in the chat so they okay. can remember them. Okay, well, Doom has to be one of them. <laughs> obviously, yeah. Yes, uh, Doom Metal is Doom. Obviously. I'm not sure that it is. Yeah. Uh oh. D- Doom metal might be more like what? Thrash? What is bla- black thrash? I, yeah. I think. I think that so. Might so be. black thrash is like it's black metal and thrash combined. So it's like faster, but with those uh the similar kind of vocal attacks and more blast beats. I do think that probably the closest one is uh, Doom is probably the closest to being black thrash. So. Oh, I was gonna say like a Dark Souls speed run. No, Doom, like on whatever that hardcore difficulty is. Oh, yeah. Nightmare. Yeah. So would sludge metal be like Dark Souls? Because it's kind of like, isn't sludge metal more like slow yeah. and droney and yeah. like kind I think, of. I think sludge is good for um, Dark Souls is good for sludge. So Doom Doom and sludge are, di- are different, though. So sl- sludge is kind of this like it's it's crunchier than Doom. Doom can can be more ephemeral and spacey sometimes. It's still really low tones but it doesn't have that kind of grindiness to it. So Doom would be... Doom is the hardest one for me to think of. All right, let's pass. Okay. Yeah, I think we could find a gr- one that matches with Grindcore. We could. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Yeah, <laughs> right. Be absolutely literal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tony Hawk's Pro Skater is actually pretty good because not only do you do a lot of grinds in it, Grindcore is the closest of these genres to punk music, which... Mm. Well, there you go. So it cool. actually works pretty well. Uh, second wave black metal is definitely going to be some sort of like one of those genres where it's like really lo-fi and uneven. It, and it's like very, very interesting. But a lot of it is actually hidden from you. What's that? What's that game where you have like really nicely rendered gloves that you make glyph symbols with? And then these weird characters show up. Hmm. Liz, you, I'm sure you know what this one is. If I uh, I mean, I probably do, but I have no idea what you're describing. (laughs) Is it some kind of like dark indie kind of game? Yes, for sure. Okay. I don't know. Paratopic, something like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that could be it. It's it's definitely. Yeah. There are a lot of things that could fit that. But yeah, we'll say Paratopic. Yeah, that sounds good. And that brings us back to Doom. 
And that brings us back to Doom, 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 Doom. Uh, so we want something like a little more, a little less grindy than a Dark or Souls kind of game, but similarly kind of long paced and and droney and maybe that kind of mood. Yeah, Bloodborne. Mortal Coil. Yeah, but that's a but Bloodborne is a Soul Souls game. Sorry, what did you say, Ash? Mortal Coil. Mortal. What? What is that? Damn. I think yeah, it's I know coil. what you're talking about. That one is um, it doesn't have kind of the the spacey cerebralness to it, but I do see it. I think Mortal Coil isn't a bad choice. What about like Prey or Control or something like that? I don't know. Yeah, control. maybe Control might be good. It does slow down a lot. <laughs> control. Um, <laughs> well, because Control is like very committed to a specific aesthetic, and it is more like moody or you know whatever. Yeah. I know it's like still combat focused but yeah i feel like there should be a little less of that i I was gonna try to see if there could be like a stalker i don't know stalker yeah i think that's good that mm. might be it oh what about into the breach mm, it doesn't mm. into the breach isn't moody is it no and it doesn't have the pace for me i think i think stalker is actually right. wait maybe it's um maybe it's silent hill okay yeah yeah well silent hill that sounds good yeah that's fine okay we solved it we have meet the challenge Take that, sleepy nice. You thought you could stump us, but we still got over a minute and a half left in this. We're going to take those 90 seconds to run a quick victory lap, and we'll be right back after the break. Hello. Hello. I heard someone say hello. Yeah, it was was Jaffe and then me. Okay. This is the part of the show where we practice our barbershop quartet. Hello. 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 We were not harmonizing no. at all. I just did all three by myself. Didn't help. Welcome back to the Insert Credit Show. I'm here with Brandon Sheffield. Yep. I'm here with Ash Parrish. Yo. And I'm here with Liz Ryerson. Hi. So I'm glad all of you could be here this week because we've been putting off discussing some pretty dire stuff that's been happening in video games just overall in the corporate culture and in the general zeitgeist it just feels like we're at a particular nadir at a point that's generally been kind of low for a few years but maybe it isn't maybe it's just the fact that these things are coming to light and they've always been this way yeah no matter what rung of uh the uh, video game sphere you look at, it's something that a lot of our listeners who are mired more in obscure video game ephemera and dead consoles might not necessarily be following, but I feel like they really should be. So for this half of the episode, I'm turning off the timer because I think it's time for us all to address what the hell is wrong with video games. Do, do we want to start at a specific point? I think we should start talking about the Activision Blizzard stuff okay. first, maybe, um, because what's interesting to me about that one, obviously, for people that don't know, not obviously, the state of California is suing Activision Blizzard because they have this pattern of basically misogynist and abusive behavior and uh, negative behavior toward people of color and anyone who's not a straight white man, essentially, I mean, we've all known forever that this is just kind of what the video game development culture is. But as more people who aren't that come into it, the industry has to change and it hasn't. And what I find interesting about it is that the reason I believe it's possible that some things may change now is because Activision Blizzard is also being sued by their shareholders for uh, negatively impacting 
financial results by having this culture be rotten. And that's interesting to me because for the first time, it's like those shareholders are who they're beholden to, who these companies are beholden to all the time. And for the first time, because of money, the shareholders are on the side of you need to fix your culture. It's it's very interesting. And the only way that I think change might actually occur. Uh, but I feel like that's only really the solution when you're talking about big money, like the major imperial video game overlords that swallow up all these tiny studios. And it's yeah. not really something that's exclusive to that. It's uh, no, it a culture that you see even in the smallest video game spaces. I feel like money isn't the way to make that go away because there's no, something more rotten right at the root. Of course. No, I'm just saying this is this is it's an interesting time to me because you know, Ubisoft can promise all it wants that it's going to do internal investigations and things, but until it affects their bottom line, what incentive do they really have to do anything but brush it under the rug? And that that's why I think that's an important thing at this point. I, I did want to talk about something that I just remembered, which is sort of my experiences with this kind of culture, because especially as a as a white man, I do I'm I'm somewhat complicit in it because in earlier days I wasn't like stopping these things or whatever. So it, when I was working at a larger company, I was involved in two instances of getting someone fired because they were inappropriate toward people and stuff like that. But at the same time, I remember I have this memory of sitting around a table at a after work function that I was sort of forced into going to. And it wound up that only men were there. And this was a, a predominantly uh, woman run organization at this point there there were more women than men on the team but this one guy was like wanting us to all go around the table and say which uh which woman on the team we would most like to sleep with and i did Ugh. say i'm i'm not going to talk about this but i what i didn't do is then turn around the next day and go to hr or somebody else and be like this is this is what this guy was talking about and that's where I think a lot of us, you know, well-intentioned white men were complicit in it because of things like like that, where we're, you know, it 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 makes us personally uncomfortable. We we know that we have that much social awareness, but we're not out there like calling it out directly at the time or through official channels or whatever else. And quite often those official channels aren't there to support you. And I remember for me, I was like, well, that's just what sales is like. Like, that's mm. that's what the people in they're like that. And, you know, this was 20 years ago, but I have really railed against that problem. Like, this is just what X person is like, and you have to dance around it. I talked about that in the last What the Hell is Wrong with Video Game. We have to call that stuff out when we see it, or else we're just going along. It's so much easier not to because it doesn't affect us, you know? Like, it doesn't affect me personally, except for... I don't get to work with cool people anymore, maybe. And this guy did eventually get fired because, I don't know, some 10 years after that, something that he did got brought up. And I was like, oh, yeah. And here are these five instances that I can remember. Um, I wasn't even working at the company anymore. But the person I told it to was like, I can't believe I didn't know all this stuff. Of course, they sort of knew some of this stuff. And, you know, it's it's like we need these kinds of moments in order to force ourselves to have these conversations about it and then actually address this stuff so that people like that can actually eventually get fired. 
it's amazing to me how like little people talk to each other about it, like when they witness some sort of incident or, mm. you know, there's something going on. It seems like there's like so few communication happening, like in the indie space, especially. But we'll talk about that in a second. The one thing I was going to say is, I guess my feeling is that like this stuff is so much to the root of like the the whole market construction around game culture and who gamers are and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff that it's this like refuge away from life experiences or people for a lot of people and that has kind of become the default and because of that it's like seeped into the root of everything and like really the only thing that had a chance of holding you know blizzard activision accountable was the fact that they were sued by the fucking state yeah because their employees i don't think can sue them outside of maybe civil court because of the arbitration yeah so wow and it's like it, it has to be particularly bad to get sued by the freaking state. So there can even be sometimes pressure to like improve uh, certain kinds of visibility without improving the internal culture, because more substantial conversations about, you know, improving the internal culture eventually kind of go to the lines of like, well, maybe unionization is the thing we need to be thinking about. Or it, it comes back to like the leadership having certain values and certain um you know, people that they are maybe protecting. And, you know, I just worry about another company being like, well, we have this, you know, diversity and inclusion officer that we've hired who basically does damage control for us now, you know, and like, it's it's not a great place to be in if they're not really addressing the issues, uh, but they have a few faces that they trot out, you know, who are basically mm-hmm. absorbing some of the the blows that should be going towards the, you know, the people in the leadership positions who have way more power in the company. There's like a a phenomenon that I can't think of off the top of my head where companies will bring in like a minority candidate and at some kind of like mid-level leadership position. And, you know, there's this initial honeymoon phase. We're like, oh, we're so happy you're here. But then when this person who oftentimes is a black woman or another woman of color is like, okay, well, these are the things that you need to change. This is what you hired me for. And then they push back against this person like, well, no, mm-hmm. or not this, or they and they don't let them do the job that they hired them to do. And then the woman of color like exits the organization or either is like made the fall guy for like when shit inevitably happens again. And it's just that repeated over and over and over again. Like you bring in these women of color to like rehab these companies that have been so thoroughly rotted from the inside that there's nothing that they can do. So when it inevitably fails, they can all point like, oh, it's the black woman. It's her fault because she was at the head when it all went down. She stirred up trouble. Yeah, exactly that kind of situation. And that's what I fear when I when you think of stuff like this, because, well, Blizzard's going to fix it because they're going to hire all these minority candidates. And there's like, yeah, see, we're doing better. And then they don't offer support and it just all falls apart again because there's a difference between having diversity. That's why it's called diversity, equity and inclusion. Like you can have diversity, but if you don't have inclusion, then you've just got a bunch of people that you've got here that are isolated and don't know how to do what they're supposed to do and don't feel supported. So they inevitably leave. It has to be like a thoroughly holistic approach to this. And I don't know, I believe in the employees at Blizzard and I believe in the things that they're saying is like, we want to do better. We love this company. It's not a function of, you know, I'm never paying Blizzard Activision again. I'm not giving them my money. But the people who are there are like, we love this company. We know it can be great. You know, help us help them do better. Right. And we can't do that with like taking away our money or whatever, you know, making those kinds of like boycott calls and stuff like that. I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but I have a lot of thoughts about this, like all that are all like schmooshed together. You're here for this. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's totally true. I mean, 
the thing is like there's there's such a rot at the root and like the problem is it's not even really with most of the employees it's with the leadership and the people who are enabled you know mm-hmm. and so like somebody might be in a position of protection like like say some guy is being inappropriate but you know that person is like friendly with his superior or you know that they're like old friends back from some when they worked at you know some other company or something like that or literally the son of the CEO, like in the Guimauf case in Ubisoft. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that happens all the time. It does. I, I I mentioned this in the last one, but one person like that that everybody knows. Okay, we just got to avoid this person, or that's just how this person is. That one person can have such an outsized effect on everything because they wind up dictating the culture by virtue of you having to tiptoe around them. Or, you know, they have they have trouble socializing. And so that's why they're they're like following women to their cars. Not he's a bad guy or anything. Just some of the stuff that was happening in some of these things, in some of these allegations are literally things that happened to an ex-girlfriend of mine where there was a there was a guy following her to her car every day after work and then started leaving messages on her oh, God. window, which were like, you know, I, I love you. I don't know what to do about it <laughs> and projecting it onto her. And so then she would go to her car with her with some of her coworkers that she trusted who also then wound up because they felt like this white knight protector situation, then they wound up being into her and then like sort of fighting over her and stuff. And uh, just seeing that in the allegations, I was like, Oh, right. I guess this isn't, this isn't even uncommon. (laughs) You know, so many people work at these companies. I I am convinced are not like emotionally developed as human beings. Like, I'm sorry, but like they, they, they like come from a context where they're like not used to like dealing with real relationships and people. And like so much of like games world, it's constructed so that people don't have to deal with that stuff. Yeah. And then so when it becomes a, a factor and, you know, someone from a vastly different experience from you comes in, there's just this like... I don't know. I just like it it makes me so angry because I I bring this stuff up and people just get mad and they're like, "Well, you're saying that like, you know, people lack life experience and, you know, saying that the people are man babies or whatever." But there's just this there's a lot of truth to it. I don't know. Hey, it's not just video games, okay? It's also comics. Also comics. So, yeah. There. yeah. Well, yeah. we'll say we'll say like nerd <laughs> culture in general. Yeah. Just- I wanted to talk also about how or rather I wanted to add- I don't want to put Ash on the spot, but like um, we're, when you take it all the way to the bottom to the the gamers and the people that are really paying attention to game things, Ash, you just you were at the verge for uh, three days before you yeah. got some racist stuff in your in your inbox. Like, I don't I can't even articulate like you. You have to just deal with. Am I allowed to be a, a human in this space? It's really hard because these people who play video games the majority of them are white men and now that and you know they have this feeling of ownership over video games and now that more and more people as more and more women of color and you know marginalized identities come to this space and finding space to speak about games and space to make games and and space you know to criticize the games that are that are being made and it it feels like it's that old saying, like, you know, when you've been on top for a while, any attempts at, you know, equity feels like an attack. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what it is, that this is something that was theirs. And now these people are trying to take it away from them. And, and it's like, of course, that's not the case. Like, we're all sharing here and we want to make sure that these games are accessible to. There's not a limited resource of game enjoyment. Yeah, it's not a zero sum game. Like, the thing that sticks out in my mind the most is that I got some 
rando on YouTube made a 30 minute long YouTube video about me because, and this was after I reviewed the Baldur's Gate 3 character creator. And I'm like, you know what would be cool? Accessibility devices. Figure out how to make some kind of oldie timey, you know, past punk kind of thing, like where you could have a hearing aid or whatever. That's all I said, you know, or, you know, limited mobility devices. Like, canes exist. Gandalf walked all across Middle Earth with his damn staff. That's true. Like, why can't we, you know, why can't we rig up some crutches for people, you know, just just so those kind those people, people with disabilities can be like, ah, yeah, cool. I can do this. You know, and they just got so angry and so hateful that they decided they wanted to make a YouTube video about it. And I'm like, I'm not asking for these people to not make games. I'm just asking for the games that they make to be inclusive in who is making them and how they represent them. And just some people just don't have the brain power to compute it. In a cynical way, I think some of it is like content mind material. Like they know yeah. like for that particular case, yes. Yeah. Like even if, if some of those people don't get that upset about it, they know that like X number of people are gonna get upset about it. So I can make a video and I can get an easy X or Y views. They're kind of like easily scoring points off of hate gets clicks. Yeah. And I there's this this whole industry to some of this stuff that is just so it's so gross and so cynical and I and I felt like I started to witness it more and more with Gamergate stuff how like so many of these people built brands off of just getting mad about video games and then when yeah. that you know zeitgeist went away they you know became alt right or whatever there's just some way that like this kind of discourse happens on the internet that always seems to lead to this stuff and put people in positions where they're vulnerable and like where there's just like easy targets and i i don't know how you solve any of that stuff well i think one thing is it, it isn't actually white men that are the majority of game players it's that's only true if you consider like what we have traditionally talked about as games hmm. since the 90s like the hardcore console game stuff but when you consider all of games which um a lot of these very same people do not want to do but if you consider mobile games and mmos and just everything then women are actually the majority of game players if you consider solitaire and angry birds and and all these things which legitimately are video games that you play on an electronic device it is it is simply factual that women are the majority of game players so there just isn't a leg to stand like those people have to exclude so much information in order to truly feel like they are being oppressed by women wanting things or or anyone wanting more options in games like you know they they can say things were all better all, we're all great until whoever came along but it just isn't isn't true so ever yeah. since you know phones and globalization of video games have existed it's the, the the white male has not been the majority game there's so much revisionist history happening mm -hmm. in these spaces it's like it's 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 more about like a nerd lifestyle emotional appeal thing that it is really about anything like even Factual. concrete because I, I mean obviously like the the industry has been dominated by men there have been plenty women and plenty of employees of color but it has been dominated by white men like in the u.s and europe at least Certainly. but there are like plenty of examples of things that, you know, <laughs> plenty games that I remember from the 90s that are by women or directed for women, like adventure games and things like that. And you have to exclude, you know, pieces of history that don't interest you. And I, I think it's more that there's like an industry around a certain kind of guy and a certain kind of lifestyle and a certain kind of idea that the industry kind of collectively realized was its 
like best pathway to selling product so they like really doubled down on that and that has created this like self-reinforcing loop and you know now we have all the problems that we do not that we wouldn't anyway but you know they're probably worse than they would be you know without that but i i don't know i think a lot of it has to do with conscious market decisions that were made on on the part of advertisers and stuff more than it has anything to do with like someone's experience or interest in games because of course like games are a global phenomenon (laughs) they appeal to anyone and everyone or at least can yeah and what you were talking about there i think that's what leads to that that raccoon logic photo where they put out the this photo showing all the people in their new studio and it's just 40 white dudes with beards like a couple of them don't have beards but it's a lot of them are just like the same dude and it's because these people do sort of they get insular and it's like i i know other white dudes and i know that this person will be great for this job and so i'm gonna i'm gonna hire them and what and that chain just of of hiring friends of friends it keeps that culture the same it keeps it homogenous and it keeps it you know and that's how you wind up with a photo of 40 white dudes on some stairs with raccoon logic specifically um trying to follow up with that guy talk to me um funny story won't tell it tell it another time Uh, it's already too late for them that 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 picture is out they can't fix their problems they will not be able to hire as diversely as they may want to because people are going to look at that photo the people that they really want to hire the people who will be really great for the jobs the women in minority care candidates that are going to be really good for the whatever job that they have are going to look at that photo and be like this is not a safe place for me i don't want it yeah and so it just ends up becoming this feedback loop that continues on and on and on and on and on like the, the minute that he posted that photo, they were done. And and I tweeted about this earlier. It's like, I wonder, you know, if, if that's why most of the video game developers that I know that are black and brown are solo devs. wonder why that is. Yeah. Because they hmm. see that stuff and they're like, this cannot be a safe space for me. Like, I, am I going to be able to do my job or am I going to have to worry about managing tons and tons and tons of microaggressions every day? And they realize like, you know what? I just did this myself, the arduous path of trying to do this for myself. I don't have to worry about that. That's why nobody, why people of color are not going back to the office anymore. They're just quitting their jobs in order to remain remote so they don't have to deal with the oppressive white culture that comes with working in an office. Like, it just, that's just what it is, bro. And it sucks. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm talking to these these solo devs and I'm trying to talk to people at Raccoon Logic be like, what the hell were you thinking, man? Like, why did you think this was a good idea? And the, the honest to God truth is like, it does not even cross their mind. Right. Alex Hutchinson probably did not even think about that when he sent that picture. It just, he doesn't, he doesn't have that skill to manage those feelings because he's never had to. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, yeah, I, I agree with that. I be so many trans and queer people I know are solo devs and would never work at a company, including myself. There is the thing also, though, that I, I feel like there was that game Kingdom Come Deliverance, right? That like mm-hmm. got a lot of backlash because it basically had like an under the surface white supremacist kind of narrative under it. And it's not really a stretch to say that. You know, that that was a thing where like a lot of people got mad, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The game still sold well and it has its own audience and it has its own market. And I really wonder, you know, like in a universe where freaking Ben Shapiro, you know, gets the most clicks on Facebook, if there isn't just like, especially for these indie companies, like I mean, not talking about Blizzard, but for these indie companies, some of them could just be like double down and be like, okay, well, we're just going to find this reactionary right wing audience then. And because we're an indie company and don't have to really like deal with the stuff contingent on like 
running a bigger company, then we're just going to orient our entire existence to that. And and I, and I feel like there there will continue to be this like separate landscape of that kind of. And I'm not saying that those people who made that game are like that, but I that that they could very easily just be like, well, okay, we're not going to fix our problems. So we're just going to pivot and and find this audience now, and and people can complain, but you know, then that that will just like help our marketing pitch or whatever. And that's something I don't know. It's something I think about a lot. I mean, that's what they did in comics. Isn't that exactly what Frank Miller's career is? Yeah. A lot, yeah. Of, a lot of people have done that. It's a lot it, of people's It really seems like it's one of the tactics of the alt-right and the, the Gamergate crowd is that they'll identify someone who's, who, who's having a hard time coming to grips with the current state of culture. And they'll be like, you know, if you don't want to deal with all that stuff, just come, come our direction. Like, they'll just start heaping praise upon them. And then these people who are feeling, they're feeling like they're attacked. Uh, because they only have white people on their team. And then there's this other group saying, oh, but uh, we think it's great. We understand you want to have diversity, but it's fine what you're doing. And then it feels like, oh, okay, we could just go over into this this area where we don't have to think about it and we don't have to worry about it. And it it's it's like this subtle bleeding over into there until then they just become alt-right weirdos. And I've, I've certainly watched it happen with people. Is there anything that our listeners can do to help combat everything that's going on here oh i don't know don't retweet bullshit <laughs> yeah, just be nice i i think that the whole like being a good consumer thing is overrated but yeah maybe don't buy extra wise games if you don't want to or pirate them if you want to play them but uh but don't want to give them money but i, I think could we actually talk about the the fulbright stuff or are we gonna yeah, no, no yeah I, let's talk about it please i actually wanted to yeah. segue to that uh ash was talking about people not feeling safe when they look at this photo and i think that fulbright was the opposite situation where they had some kind of like queer coded narrative about women and so women and queer people felt like they could be safe yeah they could be safe there and then they were not and then they were not yeah so i i mean okay i'm just gonna be completely honest like leave it all all, all on the table because it, it's hard to be like honest about indie crap you know in in a public setting without sounding like a huge asshole I was always like suspicious and skeptical of Fulbright. I mean, it's easy to say that now. Easy for me to say, right? But I think at the time that Gone Home came out, which was the end of 2013, I sort of felt like there was kind of this explosion of like smaller queer devs, you know, and female devs and that were at least starting to get a little bit more attention and uh, people doing like more, not just personal stories, but more kind of idiosyncratic weird stuff that you wouldn't see in a usual, I don't know, either AAA or we'll call it prestige indie. And that is the thing that I use to insult a lot of things is calling them prestige indie. But um, in the prestige indie uh, circle, and by prestige indie, I off I mean like, Oftentimes, it's people who come from AAA, you know, and come from that kind of framework or mindset to start like an indie studio, right? Even among like a lot of queer people that I knew and women, uh, that game was getting a lot of praise and it just felt a little like slightly disingenuous to me that um, this thing that was, you know, coming from the context of, you know, obviously the the story was written by Steve Gaynor. It was about, it's it was like this queer story, but then also like, you walk into the house and that, that the game the house in that game is fucking gigantic and like there's no like kind of like discussion on class issues too and so that was something that i kind of felt alienating that that just kind of 
passed by. So it was this kind of assumption that this like, oh, this is our queer narrative. But then you have this gigantic house that you're like walking through. But like as far as the game experience itself, it was fine. I think around the time previous guest on this podcast, Ian Bogost, had written a piece that he was critical of Gone Home. He said something like it was like a Judy Bloom novel and it made a lot of people upset. But I remember at the time being like, I think he's right. Like uh, this is there is a kind of like elementaryness to this. And I understand that it made a lot of people feel validated um, and into the mainstream, but there is this kind of thing of like, because it came out around a time where enough people could get outraged about the fact that, you know, it was both this queer narrative and that was around the time that everyone was getting mad about walking simulators, which seems mm. so quaint now, but, right. <laughs> but everyone's like, oh, there's not real mechanics in this game. I, I'm a a stan i am a fan of walking simulators um but yeah around the time that that everyone was getting upset about that and so it kind of fueled this thing where it like it kind of encouraged fulbright to be like well we're actually doing really well with this so you know we're gonna double down and 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 make even more kind of queer narratives and stuff but then of course you know the person who was in charge of everything was steve gainer and steve is coming from a context i mean not just steve but steve is coming from a context of you know working in AAA. And all that kind of stuff. And I, I guess I felt like there was a little bit of opportunism in there. <laughs> like it, it just felt kind of weird that like this guy who was like an industry guy was being praised for a lot of the things that people weren't praising <laughs> queer devs for. I know what you're talking. I, I know the phenomenon of which you Yeah. And like it's so over time. I mean, I've known people who've worked at Fulbright who are really nice and you know all that. But I guess all I want to say is I was very skeptical of them. And I think outside of the indie landscape of like 2013, their games didn't do as well. Like Tacoma, I, I don't know nearly as many people who play that game just because of the, the landscape of indie changed, you know, drastically. And there wasn't people to like discourse about, you know, there weren't these handful of games that everyone discoursed about. There was like way more stuff coming out. But I also just had this weird feeling about the fact that he seemed to hire like mostly like and I'm, I'm not this is no slight to the people who work for him i just want to say but like hire mostly like young cis women you know of a certain type of and the reason i say that is like you're hiring someone young and vulnerable who doesn't necessarily like want to work in triple a or whatever because they are you know they know the image and so they're more likely to hang on to this job and hang on to this situation, especially because they have no recourse because you don't have HR. But even if they had HR, you know, there are a lot of problems with HR. So the only thing that they ended up having left to do was to go to the press eventually. And that's only after like, you know, years and several employees leaving. And even in spite of the fact I met Steve like several times before, I don't really I didn't really know him very well, but I lived in Portland. But I you know, was bigger friends with one or two people who worked there. I did not know about any of this stuff. I mean, I knew that there was like some kind of drama, but it's just the fact that like in the indie scene, there are a lot of people who are like, quote unquote, friends for, you know, whatever reason, like they they see each other at events, they're networking or whatever, you know, the amount that they actually know about each other and like what goes on behind the scenes is limited. And so I feel like a lot of this stuff happens where it's like, you know, all these things are coming out about all these people and like, you know, you had some proximity to them and it's like, how did I not know about this stuff? But it turns out that like a lot of people didn't know about this stuff because 
like even if you knew that that person who was abused they're not going to tell you because they think that you're friends with that person they think that you're not going to respond that way or they have internalized the sense of like i need to hold on to this because i need to have a future career and i can't go you know saying bad things about people who are well connected and well respected and it's even worse when someone has this image of being this like you know great ally or you know whatever and you know there is just something about the indie space in general that encourages this kind of like auteur mentality and the people who are best positioned to take advantage of that are people who are coming from AAA like Steve Ganner was um who have some kind of industry savvy and experience you know versus some young person of color some young you know queer person who doesn't have any of those connections I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people who worked there enjoyed making the kinds of games that they were going to make. And there are plenty of increasing numbers of small studios who are headed by women or queer people or people of color, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Huge, much more diverse groups of people. But I think this this general dynamic remains of where like somebody like Steve is in the position of more power because they have more proximity to the industry. And it is so much harder if you are outside of that space so anyway that is my long monologue about that i'm sorry don't apologize this is yeah, what the show's about yeah within indie games the, there there are a few people that are like everybody in indie games knows who they are and if you're friends with one of those people it there does wind up being this bubble around them where it's like you don't if you don't want to po- poke too far or else like maybe you're going to get in trouble or something like that you yeah, it almost makes it like the entirety of indie games is Activision Blizzard. You know, like there's no HR to tell about the entirety mm-hmm. of video games. And my studio, I have six people, uh, including myself. The Steve Gaynor stuff it made me think about this. I mean, I'm I'm not berating people or uh, diminishing their work or anything, but it it makes me think about it because I'm I'm a studio head. I have the last say on basically everything, like what art assets we use what the sounds are like, what the design is. I do the writing myself, et cetera. So I'm in a similar position to where he was. And so, yeah, I I wasn't like worried that I was being like him per se, but I wanted to make sure that everyone in the studio felt like they could say whatever they wanted to say about the game and contribute things that they want to contribute and feel empowered to do so. But it's, it's tough because... Who, who is there to ask this question but me? And then who do you have to say it to but me? Like as the studio head, it's, it's this complicated thing where there's not a lot of recourse. And so the only thing I can think that other people in my position should do is to continue to ask everybody if they're feeling okay. Like you can't just do it once and then assume mm-hmm. that it's still fine. Or you can't only do it in a group where everybody's being asked. Like you got to do it one-on-one as well, but you don't want to push people to be like pressured or upset about it or like they're being singled out or targeted and so it's even for a studio of six people i think because you know my my studio is four men two women and i don't want the women on the studio to feel like i'm hovering over them being like are you okay are you okay uh because that's weird too so (laughs) just try to be a regular human being and talk with your coworkers about how they're feeling and do it with some consistency. I, I will I will push back against that slightly in just saying that I also think that that's not enough. I think that mm-hmm. the the power needs to be more evenly distributed in a lot of situations. And I understand at the end of the day, a lot of games, 
you know, someone's the creative director, someone's the person who's, you know, calling the, you know, making that decision at the end of the day. I understand that. But like, there are a lot of situations where for me, it's like a small indie company, it's not practical for you to have an HR department. And like, if there is, it's probably like the best friend of like the person running the studio or something. So what is that going to do? And I mean, that is a... That is when we're talking about indie studios. That's a a, a situation where people might want to consider forming some kind of collective ownership situation. It's a lot easier to do when you have four or five people. Then yeah, that's a serious conversation that I think should be had because, especially you know, when it's not practical to do sort of the unionization efforts that are trying to kind of happen at bigger companies. I feel like that is something that should be talked about and thought about more. Because that could kind of be a thing that to help resolve the cult of personality. And I mean, of course, there are problems that come with collective ownership and co-ops too, but I'm you know, much more willing to go in that direction than someone who it's my way or the highway about everything and can get away with anything, you know. And I'm not saying yeah. that like, I don't know what individual situations are like. And the more that I've been out to events and met people, the more, the more I realize the less I know about this stuff, about mm-hmm. like how these things actually function. But uh, yeah, I don't know. No, I agree with that. We're not a a co-op, but everyone gets paid the exact same amount and we all have equity in the games that are released, which is um, equal. The company takes some equity and then the the employees, including myself, split the rest of that. And so it's I think that's it's it's one way to do it. Like the most important thing to do, though, is to like make sure that you're talking to people and then actively listening to them and then when you when they voice concerns you're really thinking about it and really trying to do something about it because otherwise i i I don't want to say that like i'm i'm definitely not like a draconian boss where it's like everything must be my way and everybody has the the power to lead their section but then i'm like a little more like this a little more like that is 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 my creative direction style i think where you really get into trouble is when it's truly like your employees must figure out what is in your brain. And if they don't figure out what's in your brain, you know, you're going to tell them that, that they're stupid or that they're doing it wrong or that, uh, you know, they're not valuable there. And I think that's, that those were the kinds of complaints that you were that, that we were hearing about uh, Fulbright. And guess what? When you need someone to guess what, exactly what's going on in your brain, you're going to hire people who are exactly like you. And that's that's the death of diversity right there. Yeah, it's it's just it's such a toxic relationship dynamic, actually. Like, why doesn't my partner magically intuit the things that I'm thinking? You know, like, I mean, so much of stuff that applies to romantic relationships applies to company relationships, Mm -hmm. too. Just any interpersonal relationship. Yeah, Yeah. I, I don't have experience in game dev, so I can't really say what you know people should do in that situation but from you know a gaming journalist kind of side the most frequent questions i'm asked nowadays are how did you do it and how do you put up with all the harassment and that letter that latter one is a, a little bit new and it's kind of bewildering but the answer to that is basically the same is that you and it sucks that you have to to adopt this kind of thing because not everybody can do that not everybody can do it effectively you have to have like a serious 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 amount of thick skin because it's just inevitable which sucks to say it it, because it is and i don't want to like sugarcoat it or anything like that or you know present this like false idea of like oh no this is my dream job and it's a dream every day it's not it's hell um but i love what i do but it sucks weird your personal hell yeah personal hell if you want to do this you have to be aware of the problems that will inevitably 
face you uh, when you get here. And to get here, you just have to keep keep doing it, keep writing, keep developing video games if that's what you do. Like I've been speaking to a lot of solo black and brown devs today, you know, t- asking them their, their opinions about Raccoon Logic. And it's like, you know what? And, and for the majority of them have this like enlightened idea. It's like, you know what? I'm glad I never went that route. I don't want to go up for jobs that won't hire me anyway. I'd just rather, you know, do this on my own over here. And it's created this like resilience in them that makes it so much easier for them to exist in this space. And you got to have that, that love, that kind of resilience to continue on in this place that is like actively hostile to anybody that is not a cishet white dude. Sorry. I wish there was something better that I could say, but that's just, that's, that's, <laughs> that's how I've been able to do it. Yeah. yeah. It's totally true. I think of it also as stubbornness just or spite. Yeah. Oh, Spike, for sure. You know, I got that hate mail. Like, you know, we got hard R's in chat and everything. I was like, oh, wow. I didn't even write anything yet. Like, if you just hate me right now, just for like, you know, I wrote a piece about Fortnite or whatever. Like, that's it. Like, if you hate me now just for this, you, you better wait because I'm going to do some shit that will really piss you off soon. So <laughs> that's like, the, that's the thing that drives me. Like, oh, okay, you're mad now? Yeah. Wait. They haven't even heard your Dragon Age opinions yet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's coming. More people should just be talking to each other and not even just about like, because there is this sense of like, especially in the indie space, a lot of people are friends, but they're afraid to show weakness around each other. Like, and it's it sounds really weird to say, but I've gone to like indie parties where like, you know, like people want to relate at a normal level, but it's also like so much career stuff kind of floating around nebulously that they don't want to reveal too much about themselves. So they, because they're always comparing themselves to other, you know, solo devs and they don't want to be seen as like super vulnerable because then they, they feel like that that might make them a target or like that that might, that some X or Y magic opportunity might not happen because they said or did the wrong thing. And I'm not even talking about, you know, anything problematic i'm talking about like revealing their emotional states at all i i think more people need to be talking to each other and talking to each other more honestly and like talking to each other about their lives and like relating to each other on an emotional level like less even so on a career level but more i I don't know i've just seen so many met so many game developers who i would describe as emotionally stunted i'm sorry to say and, uh, you know, maybe they just never, like, had an outlet to to talk to other people about that kind of stuff, to, like, honestly express feelings. And unfortunately, like, Twitter is not a good place for that kind of stuff. No. Like, people need to build, like, relationships that are more person-to-person and, like, longer-lasting. But, like, if, at least if people were more communicative to each other, then, like, we would know more about specific people and you know, we could stop these things at the root like a little bit quicker than they have been. Yeah, I think that's got to be it. We got to talk to each other. We have to listen to each other. We have to not assume everything is fine uh, because this is not something that just happened. This is something that's been happening. And uh, the fact that we see it all out in the open, if things are going to get better, it's because we are going to be willing to talk in the open about these things when we see them, uh, not just in the office, but uh, if that fails, then to uh, a, a wider public. Yeah, I think the, the only thing that listeners could really do is have these kinds of conversations within whatever circles they're in, because really, right. it's not it's not just a video games problem. It is a American, American culture problem. problem. Yeah. I've seen this in 
every the office I've ever problem. worked in. Sure. Uh, yeah. But you just have to acknowledge it when you see it as not being a one-time thing, as not being a joke, as not being harmless, because it's not usually, it's always a symptom of a larger problem. And that's that was like the one last thing I was going to say. Like, it is not on marginalized people to correct these issues. It is yeah. on the people who are perpetrating it. So, like, if you are trying to say that you're this nice ally, nice guy, or whatever, you need to call that out in every time it happens. Yes. You need to make the people who make these jokes, even if they've been your best friend forever, you need to make them uncomfortable when they make these jokes. Even if there are no women around to hear them or no queer people or people of color around to hear them, even if it's just you and your boys or just you and one other person, you it has to be every, every time. You yeah. have to be willing to sacrifice your personal comfort in order to make this better because that is the only way that it happens. Got to be okay with letting your friends be mad at you uh, because that's the only way it's going to happen. I mean, it, like, I'm, and I'm saying this in a hypothetical way, obviously, but it shouldn't be a big deal if someone says something and you, you say, like, hey, don't right. say that. It you should know, not be or a big, like, it, It's going to be a big deal. It, it shouldn't yeah. be a big deal. Uh, you still got to do it. Absolutely. Uh, so to our, according to the last survey, uh, 89% cis male audience, uh, I would say, uh, call it out where you see it. I think the last metric was that where it's 89% uh, cis male, 2% female, and 9% non-binary, which is a strange number. For the show? <laughs> yeah, for this show. Where, where, where did those stats come from? Um, we took a listener survey uh, earlier this year. Oh, that's right. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but that is excellent non-binary representation. I know. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, that's just where we're standing. Okay, do we want to do a fun lightning round, or should we call it here? Let's end on a high note. So here's what I've got for you this week. Um, I've got a series of uh, random letters that I generated. You have to come up with a video game title that those letters stand for, and then tell me what the game's about. I like it. <laughs> Your first game is acronymized as OFG. Okay. Well, OK is not the first letter. I've got one. Go for it. Original Funtime Gangsters. <laughs> What's this about? <laughs> it's a Yakuza prequel. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Okay. I'm already on board. I see. Uh, I, I think we got a good one there. Yeah. yeah. Point Ash. Uh, your next one is DNNG. Duke Nukem's um, Nukeming <laughs> Guns. <laughs> Uh, we're halfway there it, it's uh it's called do not not get and it's about you have to collect items ba backward and surreptitiously <laughs> you, you want to get them but you don't want to not get them is what it is so yeah. don't do what donnie don't does yeah right like that so, well, how about how about D duke nukem's not get duke nukem's <laughs> not get yeah, yeah. I like that one. And the way the way you win is by not playing Duke Nukem. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm winning already. All of us are winners. Yeah. A G. Assassin's Creed. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, I like that. You're just uh, you're just collecting stuff. You're you're just like taking taking the purses off of people, and then uh, and you're like maybe I'll assassinate him later. Just want the uh, money. Maybe I'll assassinate him. T U H P U. T U H P U. The whole last of us. <laughs> That's nothing. <laughs> uh, the underground uh, holy place university. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sell me. 
Uh, it's a yeah. This is like a um, it's like a um, it's a kind of like a Persona game or like a, yeah. you know it's like a RPG school game except you know your underground monsters you know you like your cave monsters or whatever. So our real monsters. Yeah, but you're very pious monsters because this is the underground holy place university. So you're learning about uh, the mo- the different monster deities. I like that. I do too. QJV. Quite Jerry, verily. <laughs> I hate it. That's the worst. Uh, yeah, I, I hate it too. No, Queen Jerry's Vacation. Queen, Queen Jerry's Vacation. Yeah. I like it. It's very uh, good. Is this a sim game? Yes. Good. Yeah, that's just you you are tasked with creating the most perfect queer friendly vacation. Oh. Oh, I like this. Yeah, okay. Is Jerry the main character? Yes. Okay. M J Y A. Michael Jackson's young adult. Uh, he was, said, I, wait, I did he say N or N? M. M J. I was gonna say Michael Jordan's young adult. <laughs> I was I was not trying to make a Michael Jackson joke though, and it turned into one. It's just M J Y A. What else can I see? I, I used to have a, a game uh, for the PC called Michael Jordan's In Flight, and it was like this weird like half FMV basketball sim. So maybe Michael Jordan's young adult is like a. a I don't know. You can't be Charles Barkley shut up and jam guiding them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's Michael Jordan young adult in that it's like his early years about oh. his rise to being a basketball star. It's like young James Bond or something. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm giving myself that one. He's playing. Okay, yeah, you can give yourself. <laughs> uh, I do. I do want Michael Michael Jordan's in flight to be about him getting his pilot license though. <laughs> That would be a, a Michael Jordan based. No, that game would be called Air Jordan, Brandon. <laughs> it was right there. <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Uh, your next game is MZ. It's Michael Zaxxon. <laughs> Michael Zordon. Michael, Michael Zaxxon, Zordon. which is a. Uh, you're playing an ambiguous Michael, but you can jump into larger. As happens in Zaxxon's Mother Base 2000, you can jump into larger, more famous Michaels and take control of them for a while. So you get Michael Jordan, you can play basketball, you, you get Michael Jackson, you can, uh, you can dance real well and shoot sparkles. Uh, Michael Chabon, where you can, like, write novels about early superhero culture. Yeah, that kind of thing. It's not a good one. Someone else. Massive <laughs> zebras. I don't know. I'm gonna say Mouse Zorro. Mouse Zorro? Oh, like Zorro's a mouse? Yeah. yeah. Like a spiritual mappy sequel. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a good arcade game, actually. That does. Yeah. Like a, yeah. Y-S-C-B-A. Y-S- It's fun to stay at the... You scared <laughs> Caroline. Bastard. But again. I was gonna say bastard, too. <laughs> bastard. Okay, we can all agree the B stands for bastard. Yeah. Uh, you scared... You scare. Uh, you scare children, bastard. Again. Bastard Academy. <laughs> A bat. Bastard Academy. I want to play that game. Oh yeah, you know, forget the Y YSC's Bastard Academy. No, it's 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 Young Spoiled Children's Bastard Academy. Oh, excellent. <laughs> oh yeah. fuck! Wow, that is the best one of any of them. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! Oh, young spoiled children's bastard! Account. We gotta call it there, Brandon. Congratulations, you're our winner. And it's just bully. <laughs> it's just bully. Obviously, yeah. it's just bully. Okay, sorry for the swearing. I got very excited. <laughs> Does anybody want to plug anything or just like give recommendations to our audience? I'll, I'll plug something. Um, I have a, a on again, off again podcast, and a new episode is coming out. Maybe by the time this is, but I 
I watched through several documentaries about indie games and oh yeah yeah talked about them to um another guy I know who's like an academic and uh our second part like we watched more like post indie apocalypse uh so one of the documentaries we watched is about indie games in China which was actually quite interesting and you can find it on like Steam or something so the uh, the name of the podcast is The Blood Zone Oh it's so good it's such a better name than insert credit <laughs> well, it was a name that I was saving for something. As far as recommendations, Death Dynamic Shroud, uh, I'll try living like this. I already mentioned it before. That album, Vaporwave album. Check it out. Thank you for saying that again. So I'm gonna ask. I don't really have anything to plug. Uh if you liked reading the stuff that I write, it won't be at Kotaku anymore. It'll be on the Verge. So you can find me there. Um, as for recommendations, Pig, the Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, oh, I want to really see that good. movie. Yeah, I'm waiting for that. I'm always ready for a cage night. Oh, gosh, you saw it already. I, I've seen a little bit of it and I've heard things from people who've seen the whole thing and they say it is really good. Like people think it's apparently John Wick with a pig, but it starts that way, but goes completely off the rails, I guess. I'm ready. I'm going to watch it. I've got a few. Uh, one thing I need to mention is that Matthew Kumar on the last show, I believe, uh, mentioned that Alex Cox, the director of Repo Man, was canceled recently for things. It it turns out that was not correct. He was misremembering. He was. Uh, conflating him with another kind of sociopathic weirdo British director, uh, Richard Stanley, who apparently is mm. a uh, spousal abuser, which is, uh, I got to say, it's pretty disappointing for me. But uh, we apologize to Alex Cox. And Alex we do not Cox, you're uncanceled. You're back in the Academy, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> Even though you're like probably 60 or 70 years old. Welcome back to the Young Spoiled Children's Bastard yeah, Academy. Academy. He's kind of a bastard anyway, Alex Cox. So it's <laughs> It's not like, well, anyway. Okay, and I got two media things to recommend. One is G.I. Samurai, a.k.a. Sengoku Jietai, which is a Sonny Chiba movie mm. about a bunch of Japan special, or, you know, what is Special Defense Force, whatever they call their SDF. Um, yeah, Special Defense Force. Yeah, they're army people. They were They were supposed to be on this, like, training mission thing, and then they get sent back to the Warring States period. Hmm. And then they wind up like fighting against samurai and stuff. And it's just it's an it's a movie that had so many ideas in it. None of them fully work, but it's just all over the place in a fun way that it feels it feels so scattershot in a way that's very, very pleasing. The last hour gets a little dragged down because then it's really just like samurai versus tank battles, which isn't quite as interesting as it sounds. Uh, but up until that point, it's pretty cool. And there's a lot of like weirdly chill. 70s Japanese rock music in it, and uh, you know they like flash forward to a sequence in the in the 70s where everybody's running around in tracksuits and stuff. I don't know, it's it's pretty fun. So watch that one. The other thing I got is the anime. I'm I'm gonna recommend an anime, Odd Taxi. Oh, oh, and that it is like a it it does like a <laughs> Um, essentially, if you like the main story of the Yakuza games, it's very much that kind of crime drama in a way and you don't you don't always know exactly what's going on and then things sort of come together and you know who all these characters are it's very like and media res kind of let's start in the middle of this kind of thing but it, it's not like bombastic and overly dramatic and it's well paced and it's only 13 episodes and it's a complete story odd taxi is the one that starts yes 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 right 
Is, is, is that an offspring reference? That's a crazy taxi reference. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh. I get, I, I'm I looking at screens of this and it looks like a more serious like Bojack Horseman or something. Looks interesting. It has like animal characters. It does have animal characters. It's it's good. I recommend. And that's all I got. Speaking of Matthew Kumar, he was disappointed in me last week because I don't actually give my own recommendation at the end of the episode. So I figured I might try that. I'm like... A comic books person so i figured i might as well recommend a comics book read the nice house on the lake it's a horror comic by james tynan the fourth and alvaro martinez about uh the var- people from the various friend circles of this one weird guy who are all invited to spend a long weekend at a very nice lake house together and then something interesting happens i i think our listeners would enjoy it if you read it let me know what you think. Is it, uh, is it collected in a trade? Or is it just uh, not a yet. Issue? We're three issues in. Oh, okay. That sounds like a good comics book. Yeah. A, a fine comics book indeed. Uh, I have some other recommendations. I'd also like to recommend that if you're listening to this show on any platform where you can subscribe to or review podcasts, that you engage with us in that way to keep the algorithms pushing us ever onwards. Uh, you could also go to patreon.com slash insert credit where you, yes, you could become a patron to submit your own topics, get our regular episodes one day early. One day early? One day early! And even access monthly bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Uh, You can also join us on forums.insertcredit.com and follow us on Twitter for our own personal updates and projects. The show is at Insert Credit. I'm at Alex Jaffe. Brandon is at Necrosofty. Ash is at Ad Astra. And Liz is at Elaguro. The show is edited by Esper Quinn with music by Kurt Feldman. Once more, I'm Alex Chaffee. I'm Brandon Sheffield. And I'm Ash Parrish. And I'm Liz Ryerson. <laughs> and your game has now been saved. Thank goodness. If you ever need an outlet to be raunchy and robust, uh, you're always welcome here. Well, that's what my Twitter is for. That's true (laughs) as well.